Welcome to Emmaus Road this morning. It is fall. It's happened. And thanks to Matthew uh, for being weird this morning. I love Matthew. He's weird. And what I mean when I say weird is that if you want what normal people have, just do what normal people do. Right? If you want to be like the world, just do what the world does. And Matthew and Hannah are weird people. They're Jesus freaks, and they don't, they're not content to do what the world does, right? They don't want what normal people have. They want what God promises his people, and so I appreciate them deeply. We are starting a new series this morning called Urban Legends. And um, let me just, before we get it too deep into this week's Urban Legend, let me give you the why. I, I've been saying for years now, even as far back as the days when I was in campus ministry, that we as the American church in, in the Western culture, we are seeing the great apostasy and falling away that Paul warned the Thessalonians about in his letter to them concerning the last days. Paul also wrote to the Colossian church, and he, uh, it's interesting because they battled some of the same heretical ideas that have prominence in our day. And he warned the Colossians to beware of deluding uh, spirits or uh, being deceived. He says this in Colossians 2. He says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea. It was a city right next to them. And if you're familiar with that letter in Revelation chapter 3, you'll, you'll see the comparisons, right? He says, and, and how great a struggle I've had for everybody who has never seen me face to face that their hearts may be encouraged in being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Paul says, I say this to you so that no one might delude you, that's the idea of deceiving you, with plausible arguments, arguments that sound subtle and smooth and believable. For though I'm absent from you in the body, I'm with you in the spirit, and I rejoice to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him. Did you receive him by faith? Then, then walk in faith, right? Were you excited when you came to Christ? Then continue in that excitement. He says, being rooted and built up and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving, and see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy or by empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of this world, and not according to Christ. So it, it, for me, it's of some comfort that the Holy Spirit anticipates every battle that we face, but that doesn't mean that things get better in this life. It doesn't mean that we somehow escape having to fight those battles, right? Uh, a man named Francis Schaeffer, in, in the early part of the 20th century, in the mid-20th century, wrote on this topic, looking ahead to a time when the church in Western culture would let down its guard, and then these vain deceits would enter and would influence Christian thought and Christian theology. And, and Schaefer wrote about what he called the line of despair. He said there's a line here that when we cross that line, uh, the, the line is there because uh, of postmodernism in Western culture. And now when we cross that, what, what will have happened is that we've moved to the place where we have bought into um, the, the idea that nothing is true and nothing is false. It's all to the individual. And when you cross the line of despair, we've lost the ability to know what's true. You can't say to anyone that's true and that's false because their retort is, well, what's true for you may not be true for me. And so as a culture, we have crossed Schaefer's line of despair. We're in the place now where there's no right and wrong. There's no true and false according to the world around us. And, and so certainly secular humanism 
Eastern mysticism and other worldviews have crept into the church whilst we have slept. Um, relativism is a big one, and we'll talk about this, and pragmatism uh, in the American church. Relativism is, again, what's right for you may not be right for me, and, and that idea leads to the place where there's no objective morality. If you believe relativism, that your morality is up to the individual, then, then you can't say it's morally, objectively wrong what Hitler did. So, well, that was his preference. That's all you really have if you're a relativist, right? It's just preference. And then pragmatism is just as dangerous. Pragmatism is, if it works, then do that thing. If it gets you the results that you want to achieve, do that thing, right? Because it doesn't matter if it honors God or if it's sinful. It's all about desired results and outcome. And those two things are certainly in the mix. Some, some other things have happened along the way to get us to where we are. Uh, we have in Western culture a very man-centered gospel. Um, there's a popular song that I feel like kind of encapsulates this idea for me uh, several years ago, written by Lenny LeBlanc, uh, but popularized by one of my favorite artists growing up. I'm going to date myself, Michael W. Smith. Um, here are the lyrics to the song that just drives me insane. Some of you will know it. You'll finish the lyric. Crucified. I'm not going to sing it. I've been battling a sinus infection. So, Crucified, laid behind the stone. You live to die, rejected and alone. Like a rose, trampled on the ground. You took the fall and thought of me above all. Right? Some of you know the song. Uh, right? So um, I, I, can, I can assure you that while you and I are part of the equation and God's plan of salvation, he knew us before the creation of the world that when Jesus was on the cross, he was not thinking of you above all. Maybe that burst somebody's bubble this morning, but he, he was not thinking of you above everything else. Right? But we have this very man centered, egocentric gospel, and then you throw in some consumer driven Christianity, um, and, and, and this is what we get in our current situation. The result is now that we have a church that's biblically illiterate. Many people, they're sitting in church this morning, if they've been saved for more than a couple of years, they don't know that there's a gospel of John and that that it's different from the epistles of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, but that they are all written by the same John and it's not John the Baptist. And if that's you, I don't want to know. Don't tell me, right? (laughs) Don't tell me. Well, actually, tell me later. As a pastor, I want to help you move beyond that, but right now, don't tell me. Um, But this is our current situation. Many churches, mainline denominational churches, have failed to teach the word of God systematically to the people sitting in their churches. And so we we have a system of interpretation as the people in the church that's largely uh, influenced by our culture more than actual exegesis. Exegesis is when we go to the text and say, what does it mean? What did the author intend to say? Not, what do I want it to mean, right? So we, we don't have that. And then you mix all that stuff together, and then what you take out, you put it in the oven, you bake it, and you bring it out, and you have a big, big heaping plate of apostasy and deception. That's, that's what we have, right? So um, this is why we, we're doing the Urban Legends series this fall. Because my job, according to Ephesians chapter 4, as a pastor, is to equip the saints, that's you, I hope, for the work of ministry. And that means helping you sort through some of these deceptions, right? You may not know some of the things we're going to tackle this fall are even deceptions. You go, well, I, I believe that for a long time. Okay, great. Let me, let me help you move to the place of understanding what the Word of God actually says, Right? And so I also hope that along the way, uh, you're thinking about people as you sit here and hear these things going, man, that guy that I work with, he needs to hear this, right? That, that, and so there's a go tell, 
right? You're missionaries. God has put you in your place of work. He's put you in your school. He's put you in wherever he has you during the week as a missionary. And then there's a come see element too. It's like, man, I need to bring that person to church with me. And so be missionaries in your workplace, in your neighborhoods, in your schools, right? But my charge to you above all other things is this. I want you to be Berean. I want you to be Berean. That's Acts 17, 11. Right? Acts 17, uh, Luke is writing the book of Acts, and, and Paul was on his missionary journey, and they had been in Thessalonica, and then they had moved on to the next city called Berea. And Paul says, and, and, and uh, Luke writes down here that the Bereans were more noble minded than the Thessalonians because they searched the scriptures every day to see if the things that Paul was teaching them were actually true. So, so I, I'm always saying, like, be Berean. That's on you, right? Don't, don't walk out of here and go, Pastor Mike said, so it must be true. Your responsibility is to go home and open the word of God and then see if what I'm telling you is true or false. Be Berean, right? Don't take my word for it. Always go to the word, regardless of who's preaching, regardless of who's teaching. And so our purpose in this series then is to bring clarity to the scriptures, clarity to the scriptures into the Christian faith so that they're clear for the believer and so that the gospel's unobstructed and accessible to the lost. Because these, these urban legends actually confuse things. They actually make this cloudy. They, they obfuscate the gospel. They, they get in the way and confuse people. And what we want to do is clarify all these things so that the gospel becomes clear, right? And so here's this week's urban legend. You ready? This week's urban legend, a loving God would never send people to hell. A loving God would never send people to hell. So let's just dig into this, right? Nobody really likes to talk about hell. Nobody. I, I struggled this week. And I'm, I'm usually, like, I have the spiritual gift of obliviousness. I generally just don't care what people think. But even this week, as I'm preparing this, like, my heart is like, oh, man, do I really want to say that? Do I really? Yeah, it's in the Bible, but do I really want to present that truth? And, and the Holy Spirit had to, like, just, just drive me beyond my self and some points here because nobody likes to talk about this. It's probably the least preached on topic in the church today. Now, I'll grant you that the notion of eternal punishment is not a comfortable subject for discussion. Barna Research found that just over 80% of Americans believe in some form of an afterlife. Now, that's not church people. That's just 80% of Americans, right? And then 71% of those people believe in hell, but of those 71%, it varied really greatly as the whole spectrum of what hell is like. Uh, modern Christians tend to view hell uh, emphasizing spiritual aspects over a physical suffering. So, so then a lot of Christians in the church today see hell as this logical extension of free will, of mankind's rejection of God's gracious advances. Even, even if that lasts for eternity, it's more of a, a, a place of remorse that I didn't make a better decision to follow Jesus, right? And that's the view, that's the predominant view of hell. Modern Christians question hell's eternality, in favor of some sort of universalism. Like if you're just there long enough and you experience enough pain, then you graduate out. Then you get to come into heaven because you've been, you've been purged and, and sanctified because of what you suffered in hell, which is just kind of purgatory 2.0, right? Which is not what scripture teaches. It's not what scripture teaches. Or the other option is a lot of Christians have started to adopt annihilationism, which is the idea that if you're not saved and in Christ Jesus when you die, it's just like turning off the light. There's nothing. You just cease to be. And that's not what scripture teaches either. So can I just say to you that 
all along through the history of the church, hell has been a difficult topic. Even some of our best theologians have struggled with really embracing hell. Not that they've jettisoned the doctrine, but they acknowledge that it's a hard thing to wrestle with. C.S. Lewis in The Problem of Pain. Uh, I love this quote. He says, some will not be redeemed. And there is no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this if it lay within my power. But, but he goes on in the same book and in other writings to say, it's not within my power. I don't get to choose which doctrines are in the Bible and which are not and which are true and which are not. If it were up to me, I'd remove it, but, but I'm not God, and so I can't. And so we have to deal with it. We have to deal with the reality of hell. So when we hear that urban legend, a loving God would never send people to hell, we, ne- we need to remember there are a couple of things going on beneath the surface. What I want to teach you to do is get beyond the surface, get to the presuppositions, get to the beliefs beneath the beliefs, right? And so there are two misunderstandings in this in this urban legend. One is a misunderstanding of God and the other one is a misunderstanding of love. So let's tackle those first. Let's deal with those first. The misunderstanding of God. You see, God is love. That's first John chapter four. God is love, but that doesn't mean that love is God, right? Love is not somehow the whole in, in, in total uh, encompassing attribute of what God is and who he is. Love is not God, right? There's, there's more to him than that. God has attributes and characteristics and things that he's revealed about himself. And the first and foremost, most central attribute of God is not love. That may surprise some of you this morning. It's not love. His first and foremost attribute is holiness. Holiness, holy is just one of those church words, one of those Bible words, and it means other than, it means different than. He's not the oldest, kindest grandpa in the sky that you can imagine. He's other, he's, he's something else that we can't describe. He's, before the world began, he has always been. He's, he's the uncaused cause. He's the unmoved mover in philosophy. He's always been. And so he's not, he's not anything else before he is holy. He's holy. And then next to holiness in, in his attribute stands righteousness. Righteousness means God is perfectly right in everything that he does. He never errs. He never makes mistakes. He never sins. He can't do what is wrong. God is morally perfect. So at the core of God's identity is holiness and righteousness. Those two things are there at the center. And then grace flows from holiness. You can't have grace apart from holiness. And mercy spills over out of holiness and righteousness. Mercy comes out. You can't have mercy apart from his holiness and righteousness. And then love, love is connected to his holiness and his righteousness. You can't have love without that. And so we misunderstand the nature of God. And then, and then we make a second mistake and we misunderstand the nature of love because we've adopted the world's definition of love instead of the Bible's definition of love. See, the Bible says that love is a choice. It's an act of the will to, to choose the good of someone else over me. I choose to sacrifice for the good of others. And, and greater love has no man than this, that he, what? Lay down his life for his friends right? Jesus exemplifying love for us and saying, I'm going to sacrifice. I'm going to make a decision to sacrifice in the garden. The the emotions were not in alignment with the decision, were they? Father, if there's any other way, please, please take this cup from me. It's not an emotion. It's a decision of the will. 
Nevertheless, not my will be done, but yours, right? And he goes to the cross. He shows us what love is. We've adopted the world's definition of love, which is to make much of the object or the recipient of love. Make much of me, God. Love me. If you love me, God, then you'll do what I want you to do, even though you're the creator and I'm the creature. That's the world's definition of love, but that's not love True love makes much of the giver of that love, the source of that love, right? And that's why Jesus can truly say, if you love me, you'll obey my commands because we are not, we were not and we are not the initiators of love. We, in fact, 1 John four nineteen says we love, why? Because he first loved us. So he's the initiator of love. He's the source of love. So then it's right to make much of him because he's the initiator and the source. Love is not making much of me, the recipient, right? And so we've got it upside down and backwards. And so we have to get these straightened out, this misunderstanding of God and this misunderstanding of love. And then this, this other reality here that's beneath this urban legend is this slow, invasive creep of universalism. And I just have this vague memory of a movie when I was younger called All Dogs Go to Heaven, right? Um, and I am a, and I'm a dog owner for the first time this last year. And, and I'm kind of, I'm like, yeah, no, I'm down with that because I just can't imagine sweet Montana, you know, being in hell. Poor puppy, right? Not that it even works that way for animals, right? It's a different thing altogether. But, but what we've done is we've taken dogs out of the title of the movie and put humans in, in its place. It's all humans go to heaven because God is a God of love and he never send people to hell. If, can I just say to you, if all people go to heaven, God is heinously unjust. If all people by default go to heaven, God is unjust. Hitler's in heaven? Really? Really? Mao Zedong, Stalin, those guys are in heaven? Well, well, yes, if they trusted Jesus for forgiveness based on his sacrifice before they died, we have no reason to believe that they did. So even those people have access to heaven if they would choose to believe in faith and receive the grace of God. But no, if they stand before God in their own merit, having died in their sins, they are not in heaven. They are not in heaven. If everybody goes to heaven, God is unjust. And so they're, they're, what that does for us is it helps put everything in the world. It clarifies everything around us because there are only two categories of people in the world. There are only two types of people. There are redeemed people who are saved by faith in Jesus and then there are those who are lost in their sins. Those are the only two types of people in the whole world. And, and, and so the, the calling of the church is that we're supposed to be frantically laboring to see that category two people are moving into category one. That's our job. That's our job. I love getting together here with you guys. I love coming early and setting up and doing everything that we got to do to make this event happen every Sunday to hear your voices lifted in praise to Jesus as we're together. It's an amazing thing, but that is not the calling of the church. This is the, this is the, the planes come into the aircraft carrier to land and refuel and get what they need to get back out into the battle, right? That's what this is. That's what this is. Right? Our calling as the church is to be out in the world taking the gospel to people. Right? And so we're moving the category to people who are, who are still lost in their sins and will face judgment apart from the grace of God into category one as they come to faith in Jesus. That's our calling. That's our calling. So when we talk about this urban legend, a loving God would never send people to hell, my question is always, the, f- the first question I ask is, well, what does the Bible say? 
What does the Bible say? It said, be Berean, right? What does the word of God say? This is the heart of this series is to, to garner in you this response that whenever you, anybody comes to you and says, well, I've always heard this and this and this. You would say, well, what does the Bible say? That would be your heart's response, right? That's the question. What does the Bible say? Let's talk about it. Here's what the Bible says. There are three uh, words that we translate for right or for wrong as hell in the English. And I want to give you those three words and give you just the, the way that they're different and the way they're used in scripture really quickly. Um, the Hebrew word is Sheol, which is the place of the dead. Um, you'll see it used a lot in the book of Job. And, and by the way, let me just say, I have extensive notes here in my notes and cross references for every single one of these things, multiple cross references, which I will not give you right now because it would just, for some of you, you'd be like, I can't write them down fast enough and it's just so aggravating, right? So if you want the information, email me this week. I'll send you my notes with all the cross references and then you can look them up and be Berean and go, yeah, Pastor Saddy really does what he's talking about or like that guy's a kook, right? Totally up to you. But ask me for the notes. I'm not gonna give you all the cross references right now. Sheol is Hebrew for the place of the dead. Job describes it as a place that's deep and dark and with bars and that the dead go down to it, right? So Sheol, the second word is the Greek word Hades, is the home of disembodied spirits, and Hades is the abode of the unsaved dead prior to the, the great white throne judgment in Revelation 20, okay? Um, that's the most common, well, we talk about hell, probably the closest idea we have. It's a prison, First Peter 3, and it's downward. And, and neither of these are the grave, though they're sometimes mistakenly translated as the grave. And so you have Sheol, Hades, and then Gehenna. And Gehenna is the equivalent of the lake of fire. So Gehenna was a trash heap outside Jerusalem at the time of Jesus. And here uh, in this trash heap, they would throw dead bodies of animals and of criminals and of lepers along with all of their filth. And all that was cast in and, and lit on fire was consumed by fire and the fire was always kept burning. They couldn't, for, for the sake of rampant disease spreading, ever let that stop burning. So that was a continual burning pile of refuse and trash and human waste and and criminals, right? And so thus in the process of time, Gehenna became the idiom or the word picture of the place of everlasting destruction, right? That was the best way to describe what God's judgment apart from the grace of God is gonna be like for those who have not responded in faith. And so Jesus uses the word Gehenna 11 times in that way. And so even in Revelation 20, it says, Hades will be cast into Gehenna at the final judgment, Right? So think of Hades as the county lockup and then Gehenna as the federal penitentiary, right? So you guys are you're being held here until your final arraignment and then, you're, and then you're here forever, right? In the lake of fire. That's the way that works. Uh, and then, and then I, I would like for us to look at, look, look at Luke 16 briefly because um, I think um, this particular passage of scripture as Jesus is teaching gives us some insight into this idea of hell that we would miss otherwise. Luke 16, 19 to 31. It'll be on the screen if you don't have your Bible. It says, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus who was covered with sores. He desired to be fed with that which fell from the rich man's table. Just give me your crumbs, right? Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. That poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom, Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. 
and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham and Lazarus far off. Lazarus was at Abraham's side. And so he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and come cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. Do you see how the life lived, having ordered people around his whole life, being rich and having power? Like even in Hades, he's still ordering, like Abraham, like you can tell Abraham what to do, really? Right? Tell him to do this. And Abraham said, child, remember that in your lifetime, you received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. So he said, then I beg you, Father, send him to my father's house for I have five brothers so that he may warn them lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, this is powerful, listen to this. They have Moses and the prophets. They have the word of God. Let them listen to them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced even if someone should rise from the dead. Now, the irony of this passage is that Jesus is saying this to the Pharisees and he's getting ready to die and raise from the dead. And he's like, you guys, you have the word of God and you're not going to believe. You're not going to believe, right? But there are some things here. What can we learn from Lazarus and the rich man? First of all, this is not a parable. It has been taught as a parable in many churches all down through the church age, but the use of proper names here is an indicator that it's not a parable. In every parable that Jesus teaches, he says, there was a wealthy man or the son of a rich farmer, or, but he never uses personal names, right? But here he does. This is not a parable, right? Secondly, those who died prior to Jesus's resurrection all went to this place and were in either one of those two compartments, Abraham's bosom or, or what's called paradise or Hades, right? And we, and we know this because on the cross, well, I'll give you a couple of verses. What did Jesus say to the thief on the cross? Today you'll be with me in paradise. He didn't say today you'll be with me in heaven. Today you'll see my father. You'll be in the throne room of heaven. He didn't say that. He said today you'll be with me in paradise. That's the place we're talking about right now, this compartment in Hades. We know uh, that Ephesians 4 and 1 Peter 3 describe Jesus descending to the lower parts of the earth and then leading captivity captive, and that many patriarchs and others were seen after his resurrection, them having been resurrected as well in Jerusalem. And then and, and somebody said, come on, man, do you, do you really believe that? And I'm like, yeah, that's what the Bible says. Um, so first, second, third, people there have awareness and consciousness it's an important, important thing to note here in the text. There is pain, there is suffering and torment, and there is regret, and it cannot be undone. It cannot be undone. So Sheol or Hades is a realm with those two divisions, the abodes of the saved and the lost, but that's prior to Jesus, right? Because now we know, because in Paul's letters, he says to be absent from the body is to be present with Christ for those who are in Christ. We don't go to paradise and wait for Jesus. See, those people all died in faith. David, Abraham, Moses, all of them died in faith. That's what Hebrews 13 says. They were waiting. They couldn't see what salvation was because they were prior to it, but they trusted that God was going to make a way. They believed in faith. And so when they died, they died in faith. 
Now, they, didn't, they couldn't believe on Jesus because they hadn't seen that event. They didn't know what it was going to look like, but they were waiting for it and expectant for it. We have the luxury now, this event's in time, we're past it, and we can look back on it and see it with clarity and go, that's how God did it. That's how he made a way. And so we trust on Jesus and what he did, his finished work. But they went into Abraham's bosom because they died in faith. They were waiting. And so Jesus went and presented himself, 1 Peter 3, to the spirits in prison. And then he led captivity captive. That's exactly what the text of 1 Peter says, right? So when Jesus ascended to heaven, he took the occupants of paradise with him. Ephesians 4, 8, 9, and 10. That lost side of Hades remains unchanged. And all who die in their sins go there to await their final judgment in the future. Let me give you some additional New Testament passages. I'm going to run through these pretty fast, but if you want my notes, again, feel free to email me this week. Uh, These these passages describe eternal torment. Uh, Matthew 5.22, anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell, right? Uh, Later in the same chapter, Matthew 5.29, quoting Jesus, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better that you should lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. He was saying later in chapter 10 of Matthew, he says, don't be afraid of people who can just kill your body, but who can't kill your soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell forever. Uh, Matthew 13, just like weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so will it be at the ending of the age. The son of man will send out his angels and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all those who do evil. And then they will throw them into the fiery furnace where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Parable of the talents, Matthew 25. Throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You sort of get the idea? I've got two more here. This is such a great uplifting message this morning, Pastor Mike. Thank you so much. So glad that I'm here. Uh, Matthew 25, 41. Then the king would say to those on his left, this is the sheep goat judgment, right? Depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And then Revelation 20. The sea gave up the dead that were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. Each person was judged according to what he had done. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. And the lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So why did God even create hell? What's that about? Well, hell was not created for man. We just read Matthew 25, 41. Hell was created for Satan and his fallen angels as a punishment for them for all eternity. But at the fall in Genesis 3, mankind rejected God as our king and our authority. We rejected his authority and we chose ourselves. We chose us. And we didn't even realize that what we were doing is we, we didn't even have ourselves as our own authority anymore. We'd actually come under Satan's authority. We, the prince of the power of the air, the God of this world, Jesus calls him, right? And we've given that authority to him. And the result is that our sin now separates us from God and any relationship that we could have with him. And only through the finished work of Jesus and faith in that and what he did on the cross can we be reconciled and made right with God. That's the only way. It's the only way. So the, so the question I get all the time is, well, well, why do people go to hell? How can a loving God send people to hell? It's the wrong question. It's wrong-headed. How can a God of love send people to hell? Right? God doesn't send anybody to hell. Can, maybe that'll blow your mind this morning. You've never heard anybody say that. God does not send anyone to hell. People go there because they love their sin. That's John chapter 3, verse 19, and Romans chapter 1. 
People love sin more than they love God. They don't want to be under his authority, so they love their sin. And hell is what we rightly deserve. It's our wages, Romans 4, Romans 6. It's what we deserve. God gave his son to die for mankind so that everybody who believes on him can have eternal life, John 3, 16. And he doesn't want anybody to perish, 2 Peter 3. He doesn't want that. Hell is the default destination of every person who breathes air because every person who breathes air sins against God and his law. And so God is merciful, he's faithful, he's patient, he's full of love, but he's also perfectly holy and he's perfectly just. And so nothing that defiles is going to be allowed into heaven in his presence. I love, um, I'm just gonna steal blatantly from Vody Bauckham, whom I love and adore. When he was asked the question of theodicy, this is the question of theodicy. That's what theologians call it. How could a loving God send people to hell? This is the question. And he, and he said, um, that's an interesting question. It's the wrong question. You've asked it in the wrong way. If you ask it in the right way, I'll answer it. And the person was, was dumbfounded. He said, you're asking, uh, you're putting the blame and the burden on God. He said, the question is not how can a loving God send people to hell? It's how can a holy God who knows what I thought about yesterday not kill me in my sleep? How can a holy God who knows all the sins of my youth, my past, my weak, not put me to death for those things? That's the question. That's the question. How can a God who's holy and righteous and perfect and just not kill me for my sins, but allow me to go on living and breathing his air? How is that possible? How is that possible? Hell is not the consequence of a failure to believe a message. right? If, if that were the case, sending missionaries would be the worst thing we could do. Because then people are hearing the message and some of them are not believing. Better to just leave them in ignorance, right? Hell is not a consequence for failure to believe a message. It's the default destination of every human being because we are born with rebellion in our hearts and we reject God's authority and only by the grace of God do we come into right relationship with him and back under that authority. Hell is the natural and logical consequence of sin which all have committed But beyond that, when somebody asks the question that way, when they say, how can a loving God send people to hell? They're making it out like they're more compassionate than God somehow. And can I just say to you, that's not possible, right? That would be the same God, right, that took on human flesh, came to earth, died on a Roman cross that we might be free from death and hell. I just don't think that you're more compassionate than God. God is far more compassionate than you and I. He's also far more concerned with justice than you and I. And we need to keep that in mind when we talk about things like this. So let's wrap up with Revelation 21.8, which says the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the idolaters, all liars, will have their place in the lake of fire, which burns with sulfur. This is the second death. Now, I get pushback when I've shared the gospel with people. And probably you have too. And, and, and I get pushed back like this. Because um, we, we talk in the abstract and then someone will make it very concrete and say, are you telling me that my grandmother's in hell? <laughs> well, I don't want to be that person getting that question. Do you feel the emotional weight of that question from the skeptic? I have so much emotional power because that's my grandmother you're talking about, right? That's my grandmother. 
that the object, that objection has tremendous emotional weight and our tendency is to let the emotional weight of that that question overwhelm us so that we're tempted to soften the reality that scripture paints for us about the afterlife. But here's the reality. Your grandmother was a person who lived her own life and made her own decisions long before you were ever twinkling in her her daughter's or son's eye, right? I mean, this is, she had a life of her own and she has to stand before God just like your grandfather and your great-great-grandfather and everybody that's ever lived on that, no exception. No exception. doesn't matter what their relation to you is. There's no exception to that reality. And so there are two births and there are two deaths in God's economy. Everybody, God, but God's only allowed humanity to have three things. So here, here, here's the way it works. Each person is born physically, Maybe you didn't know that you were, you, every one of you, it's crazy. You were born physically. And at some point you're going to die physically. This body will stop working. Okay. And then there's a spiritual birth and a spiritual death. So a second birth and a second death. And you get to pick the third thing that you want. And it can be new life, new birth, or it can, you, can, you can have second death if you'd rather have that. But everybody gets three and there are four options and you've already got two by default. Right. So what are you going to choose? What are you going to choose? You're going to choose second birth, new life, or you're going to choose second death, lake of fire. I just think that's a no-brainer. I just, just, right? Do you you really, Christian, do you really believe in hell? As we walk out of this place today and back into our lives, do you really believe in the reality of hell? Do you really believe what the Bible says about what it's like and about what happens to people and why they go there? And then if the answers to those questions are yes, then what are you doing about it? What are you doing about it? You can't change hell. You can be part of the process of changing a person's life by the grace of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit that's in us. And so people will respond to a message like this in one of two ways. This is my experience, right? One, number one, the ostrich method. The ostrich response, which is to put your head in the sand and go on pretending like hell isn't real. And in the back of your mind, you know that it really is. I know that that's true, but I'm just going to live life like it's not. And and it's a made-up farce. And and there are actually people who call themselves Christ followers who don't believe in the reality of hell. And I think they're going to be up for a really rude awakening one day. So ostrich method is number one. And the other response that people who hear a message like this will have is to do evangelism, is to actually tell people about the gospel. And go, oh my gosh, this really is real. I needed this reminder. I needed this to stir up my spirit within me. And I can go and share the gospel and make Jesus known and snatch people out of the flames if at all possible, right? That's the end of Jude, his letter. He says, hate the garment stained by the flesh and snatch people out of the flames. That's our calling, right? What about the third option, pastor? I believe in hell, but I, want, I would like to remain indifferent. Well, that's actually option one. That's the ostrich method, right? Again, you can live like hell doesn't exist. The truth of the reality uh, is not changing how you live. You know, a person can be, they can believe in God, but live practically like they're an atheist. Did you know that that's possible? You can have a mental assent to some truth and some right information about the universe and God and what he's like and about the reality of hell and still live like an atheist. Like none of it matters. And you can give mental assent to the doctrine of hell and never lift one finger to share the gospel or to see men and women saved out of its flames. And I just say to you that what that's called, there's there's a term for that, it's called dereliction of duty. It's called dereliction of duty. And so you're a fireman, 
you're called to a, a three alarm fire and there are other trucks there and, and you just got a great birthday present. You got a new iPhone 10 and you're sitting there in the truck. All your fellow firefighters are hooking up hoses and running frantically and getting and fighting the fire. But you're sitting there 50 feet from a burning house looking at your sweet new iPhone 10. That's called dereliction of duty. And I just say to you, I don't want to be the person who has to stand in front of Jesus and give an answer for dereliction of duty. And there are lost people all around you. I put those people strategically in your life. That's Acts 7, right? Paul preaching at Mars Hill. God's put people around us where we live, in our workplace, in our schools, so that they might come to the knowledge of him because he's not far from every one of us. And then we, we, we just want to pretend like it's not real. We don't want to share the faith. We don't want to be rejected. And we're not thinking about the fact that they're going to be separated from God for forever. So what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Hell is real. Life is short. Eternity is forever. Grace is extended to humanity in this moment. There's grace. God is extending grace to every person, to you, your family, to your friends, to your loved ones, to your coworkers. Will you choose to be part of the harvest of souls that are gaining new birth in life eternal? Or will you stick your head in the sand? What are you going to do? Jesus, I pray right now in your name and the power of the Spirit that you would awaken and stir every heart in this room, that no one would leave this place unchanged, uh, apathetic about these things, but that you would stir us up, that we would be unsatisfied with the status quo of our lives. We would be unsatisfied in not telling people around us about the goodness of your grace and your love and mercy. Even if they reject you, even if they reject us, Lord, that we would not be able to stay silent, that we would be like the prophet who said, your word is like a fire shut up in my bones, and I can't help but speak these things, Lord. Would you do that in us? I pray in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.